You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All right, if you have a Bible, um, you can open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you're new here today, welcome. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we just want to welcome you. And you'll hear about that at the end of the service as well. So 2 Samuel, we're working through the life of David. And we've kind of been in a three-part little mini-series in the life of David. Which is kind of the opposite of a high point. It's a low point. We're not at the height of the mountain. We're in down in the valley of David's life for the last three weeks. So two weeks ago, it was the horror. James Davenport did such a great job preaching on the tragedy and the horror of David's sin and his lust and his abuse of power in taking Bathsheba and murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And last week, James Garcia did such a great job preaching on the confrontation of God to David through the prophet Nathan and telling David, you are the man. You are the man who have sinned. And we saw David's repentance. And today we see the consequences of David's sin. We see the consequences of his sin of, of lust and abuse of power and scheming and murdering. And, and the consequences of that play out over probably about a decade of his life that's summarized in our text for today. So there's one key verse that, that, that I want us to, to focus in on today. We'll see that on the screen. This is, we heard it last week, I think, um, but I want to re- remind us today, and this sermon is kind of in light of, and our text for today is in light of this text. This is God speaking through his prophet Nathan to David. From chapter 12, in light of the confrontation, God says to David, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So this morning, I'm just going to tell you the story. It's going to be story time this morning. Um, Of chapters 13 through 18 of 2 Samuel. Where we see this verse on the screen come to fruition in David's life. God is true to his word. So I'm going to summarize and just tell you the story of these chapters. And then we're going to tease out some applications for our life as disciples of Jesus. So here it is. It starts with this, chapter 13. And I'm going to do this at a high level. We're going to leave out a ton of details. I'd encourage you to go home and read all the details of 13 through 18 of 2 Samuel. But I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot view this morning. So David has many children. And he has many children from different wives, as was the custom of kings in, in in ancient times in this part of the world. And the Bible doesn't say that's, that was right. It just says that this is what David did. And he has two sons that are highlighted in our text for this morning. 
He has a son named Absalom with one wife, and he has a son named, named Amnon with a different wife. Absalom and Amnon. And so they're half-brothers, okay? And our story just begins with tragic wickedness. Amnon rapes Absalom's full sister, Tamar. Okay? Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Absolute horror. The story is not easy to read. Well, Tamar, who was the victim of this crime, her full brother, Absalom, who's kind of the, the, the main character of what we're going to talk about this morning, other than David. So Absalom hears that his full sister, Tamar, was raped by his half-brother, Amnon. And he waits two full years. He hatches a plan over the course of two full years a plan to murder his half-brother, Amnon, and he succeeds in doing this. He murders Amnon. Amnon is dead. And so David's family's a mess. You've got rape and murder among your kids. It's horrible. Family chaos. Well, after this happens, Absalom, knowing that this was an unjust murder where he took uh, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but Absalom said, vengeance is actually mine. So he takes matters into his own hands. He knows this was wrong, so he flees. He imposes exile on himself. And eventually David finds out about all of this, that he has a rape daughter, a murdered son, Amnon, and another son in exile on the run. And you can imagine, as a father, you would be really grieved by all of this. And so David is. And David continues in his grief of this death and destruction all over his family. All over his family. You get the impression that he's just sad all the time, and you can understand why that would be. But he's the king. He needs to rule. And so his right-hand man, David's right-hand man, his name is Joab, military commander, Um, He's been all over the life of David um, thus far as well. We've seen Joab. And so Joab hatches a plan to try to get things back in order, get, get David back up on his feet. And he hatches a plan to try to reconcile David to Absalom, okay? To restore some joy to the king. And I'll spare you the details, but David agrees to Joab's wishes to try and reconcile them. And finally, David allows Absalom to come back to the kingdom, to come back to Jerusalem with the following condition. He will not see me. He will not come into the court of the king. Okay? So you can kind of interpret this as as partial acceptance. You can come back, but you can't come like all the way back. And, And you can see how Absalom might have, his son might have interpreted this as a slap in the face, like like. Do you want me around or, or, or not? Like, like, you can come back in the neighborhood, but you can't come in the house. Like, you have to sleep in the garage. Like, that's kind of what's happening here between David and Absalom. So that goes on for a full two years. So you can see this. I'm telling the story really fast, but we've already covered, uh, like, four or five years, okay? So that, this situation goes on of, you know, if you can endure the metaphor of, of Absalom sleeping in the garage, uh, that goes on for two years, OK? 
Okay? Absalom living in Jerusalem, not being welcomed in the, the court of his father, the king. And Absalom, he grows weary of this. He grows impatient of this. And so what does he, what does he do? He's like, well, I can't really talk to the king, but I can talk to his right-hand man, Joab. So he summons Joab. Well, Joab doesn't come. He summons him again through his servants, you know. Um, your people talk to his people and, you know, how that works. Uh, he summons him again. Joab doesn't come. So what does he do? He says to his servants, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go set Joab's field on fire. That'll get his attention. I mean, the Old Testament is wild. Um, and that's what he does. And he, he sets his field on fire, and Joab's like, Joab comes to Absalom finally and says, dude, what are you doing? And Absalom's basically like, well, you should have picked up the phone when I called. Yeah? You left me no choice. I had no other choice but to burn down your field to get, down, to get your attention. So he tells Joab that he's basically sick of being in the garage. He's sick of not being able to see his father, of not being honored and, and welcomed into the court of the king. So Joab sends the message to David that Absalom's discontent, and David relents and welcomes him into his courts. The Bible says that he embraces Absalom and, and kisses him. So it seems like we're making some good progress here in David's family, right? Unfortunately, things start to get even worse for David at this point. So we see clearly that Absalom is not practicing repentance. He still has a very wicked heart. Doesn't want to honor God, doesn't want to honor his father, the, the king. So what, is, what does Absalom decide to do? He has a lust for power. And he starts some political manipulation and maneuvering to achieve and satisfy this lust for power that he has. So what does he do? Well, he decides to set up shop right outside the gate of Jerusalem. So imagine a big, huge city with walls, and, and the, the gate is kind of the front door to the city. And so he, he sets up shop like right outside the front door so that he has to like engage with, he gets to engage with everybody that comes in and out of the city. Main flow of traffic, he's right there. He wants to be where the people are. And as was the custom at the time, people would come to Jerusalem from all over the kingdom of Israel to seek justice. Like David himself was the highest court in the land. So like he was the executive branch and the judicial branch, okay? And so people would come to him, hey, my neighbor stole some property from me. I need you to settle this dispute. And they would come and, 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 and bring this before David to render a judgment. And so what does Absalom do? He decides that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to meet them at the gate where I'm setting up shop to talk to them about their complaints to talk to them about their need for justice. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them, you know what, David's probably too busy. He's not going to have time for you. But man, I wish I was the ruler around here because if I was the ruler around here, here's what I would do. Here's how I would handle your case. And so he does this type of thing, this manipulation, this maneuvering of the hearts of people for four years. 
He camps out at the gate. And the Bible says over the course of this four years, and his engaging with all these different people in Israel, he wins their hearts. He wins the hearts of the people of Israel. He's showing a lot of fake compassion for them. He's listening to them. He wins their hearts. So the Bible says that the hearts of of, of God's people, Israel, were turned away slowly over time, away from David and towards Absalom, his son. And David's been through a lot in his life. We've seen what he's been through in his life, right? And all the madness was Saul. And he sees the writing on the wall. These people are turning against me. I got to get out of here or I'm going to get killed. So he gathers people to him that are still faithful to him, and they take off. He's already been on the run from Saul and all that we learned about that in his life. And now, so much later in his life, he's an older guy at this time. He's on the run again. Not from an older man who wants to kill him, but from a younger man, his own son, who's maneuvering and politicking and manipulating to kill him and take over the kingdom. So David's on the run again. And Absalom enters Jerusalem. And in fulfillment of this prophecy that we see on the screen, that someone else is going to lie with your wives and do this publicly. That's exactly what Absalom does. The Bible says that he goes into David's concubines. And what this is is a symbol of I'm going to make Uh, I'm going to reproduce myself to expand my kingdom. That's what he's basically saying in doing this. And this is is what happens. God said it would happen, and it does. So he's attempting to expand his kingdom through reproduction of children of his lineage. So we've got a huge mess on our hands. David's betrayed by his own son, first through the murder of another of his sons, and now through patricide. And so David's on the run again. And, and Absalom, as you can imagine, is thinking like, I got to, if I'm going to maintain this kingdom, I got to kill my dad. And so he hatches this plan to kill his own father and to establish the kingdom all on his own. Well, thankfully, David hears of this plan. He has some spies among Absalom's people. And David and his people plan a counteroffensive. They go to war with Absalom and his people. During the battle, the Bible says that Absalom somehow gets caught in a tree, maybe um, you know, on a horse and gets caught in some branches or whatever. He's caught in a tree. And Joab, David's right-hand man, military commander, goes and kills Absalom. And David hears about it and is deeply grieved over the chaos of his family. He's deeply grieved over the prophecy of God that came to pass in his life that you can read about in five chapters, 13 through 18, as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Two dead sons and a raped daughter. A kingdom almost taken from him. Betrayal of the highest order. And this is where this section ends. This this, this section of David's life ends right here in chapter 18. 
And, and David is experiencing, as you can imagine, profound grief over the state of his family. So that's the story of chapters 13 through 18. That's the story of this promise of God coming to pass in David's life in light of his sin. It's, it's not exactly a feel-good story. It's sobering. So let's take a hard turn right now. What does this have to do with us for today? If you're reading your Bible and 2 Samuel comes up in your Bible reading plan, it's easy to just kind of be like, eyes glaze over, weird story from long, long time ago. What's this got to do with me on with my day? I want to help you not do that this morning. What, what could this possibly have to do with, with us? Well, instead of starting with us, let's start, let's start with the first audience. If you were an ancient Israelite, hearing this account read for the first time, what do you think you would be thinking? If you were the first audience listening to this, maybe you're one or two generations away from, from David, and this has been written down and it's recounted to you, the story of the life of David, what do you think you would take away from it? What, what do you think you would learn about God? What do you think you would learn about sin? What do you think you would learn about repentance? Well, the first thing I think an original audience and us would learn in considering this section of David's life, the first thing you might see and be deeply sobered by is this. Oftentimes sin has consequences that you could never fathom. Sin has consequences you could never fathom. Now think about what we've learned in the last three weeks. This whole thing started with David on a rooftop looking at Bathsheba as she's bathing. That's where it all started, right there. Like this whole mess could have been avoided right there. Like it didn't have to be this way. But one little decision by David goes unchecked, and then another decision goes unchecked, and that leads to another, and after a period of time, he's got consequences for his sin that he never anticipated. And other people are drawn into this that he never thought would be drawn in, that really get hurt. Like, we all know stories like this. Probably in our own lives in different ways. Or by being incidentally sucked into it because of the sin of another. Think about a more modern example that I'm sure all of us could relate to in, on some level, on some level. <laughs> so it's an imaginary scenario, but I know a lot of your stories, and this is probably realistic for some of us in the room or something like it. Imagine with me that, that your, let's say your grandfather was an alcoholic, okay? And you as grandson or granddaughter live in the shadow of his alcoholism. He took that first drink many, many, many years ago, and he liked it. He really, really liked how it made him feel. 
And it, and it could have stopped right there as a warning, like, man, this might lead to some really negative things. But he goes on and continues to drink, continues to get drunk, get drunk unchecked. Well, so what would maybe some consequences of that be? You could think of a lot of them. Some of you have those stories in your own life. Well, one would be maybe he can't hold down a job because he's drunk all the time and spends all his money on alcohol. So what's the result of that? Well, as a result of that, his family's poor. Well, what's the result of that? Well, his kids, who would be your parents, if you're imagining with me, they've got shame at school about being poor and have a hard time making friends because of that shame. And his wife, your grandmother, has a hard time loving and respecting her husband. Eventually they get a divorce because he's just drunk all the time. And as a result of that, the kids don't grow up with a dad around. And being a single mom is really hard, like your grandma. She gets desperate, connects with men who are not good for her because she'd rather be in a dysfunctional relationship than be lonely. And one of these boyfriends starts to hit the kids, one of which is your mom. So your mom now carries around the memories of being physically abused by wicked men. And as a result of that, she has a hard time trusting men. And she eventually gets married and has you. But in light of the trauma, she, she puts up walls when it comes to relational intimacy. And again, this, this leads to another a divorce. And so now it comes to you, like you grow up without a dad around. And that leaves this void in your heart that's hard for you to live with at times. Now that's just an imaginary scenario that probably corresponds to a lot of real life for some of us. But the point is this, that grandfather wasn't thinking that the first time he started drinking alcohol and felt that buzz and felt that joy from, from that high that he got off alcohol, that that would lead to having disastrous consequences for his grandkids. That never crossed his mind once. He never thought for a moment, he never thought for a moment that the first time getting drunk would set off a chain of events that would lead to immense suffering for his grandkids. And that's the point. He never thought for a moment. And, and what I want to say from this text today is this. Today is the day to think for a moment. I don't think David ever thought for a second that this moment of lust and using his power to get what he wanted would lead to the story of chaos that we've heard this morning. An utter heartache for him. But God promised it came to pass. And the point is this. Hear this now. Church, hear this. Our unchecked sin can have consequences for us and those we are connected to that we can never foresee. Our unchecked sin can have consequences for us and those who are connected to us that we can never foresee. Hebrews 3 says, sin is deceitful. Sin lies to us. Like Sin was lying to David on that rooftop that day, saying, it's no big deal, David. Whether it's his own flesh or the lies of the enemy or influences from the world, whatever it was, 
Sin always lies to us, and it says, it's not that big a deal. I mean, did God really say? Do you really think this is going to turn out that bad, David? It's probably going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Go for it. But let our account for today be a warning for us. One small decision today to indulge sin could lead to consequences that you could never fathom in the future. If you're indulging porn, if you're greedy with your money, if you're loose with words and gossip in relationships, if you lash out in anger, if you tell lots of little white lies, if you fear people more than you fear God, if you worship the approval of other people, in the small moments, it always feels like nothing, right? But, but be warned this morning. Humble our, let's humble ourselves this morning and, and be war- receive the warning from the scriptures. Be warned this morning that that even though those small moments feel like nothing, it could take you further than you ever dreamed and people could get hurt that are connected to you in ways you could never imagine. So a lot of what I've just said, a lot of you, I can imagine, hear this with really heavy hearts. Especially if you're old like me, or older than me, and you've lived more life, and you've had more opportunities to screw things up, this can land on us with, with some heaviness. Like, like, have I blown it? Is there any, is there any hope for me? Because I know I've, I've sinned, and I know I've screwed up some things. If I'm in that spot today, what, what should I do? And, and I would just say this, let, let's follow David's lead. We're definitely not going to follow his lead in terms of the sin that we've seen in the last two weeks. But we can follow his lead in this. He does practice repentance. He does practice repentance. And he's an old guy at this point. But it's never too late to practice repentance. Like David doesn't harden his heart. He could have hardened his heart with Nathan and just had Nathan killed. That doesn't happen in what we see last week. He softens his heart, he hears God's word, and he practices repentance. He turns away, he admits it, he owns it. So, so if I'm in that spot today, like today is the day of repentance. It's never too late. It's never too late. Like today is the day of turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus. Like you can break, even if you're old, you can start breaking that, that, that lineage of sin today. Like some of us need to wake up to this reality because we've been dabbling in sin without repentance for a long time. And, and your heart is dangerously close to being cauterized, to feeling used to being anesthetized, feeling used to that feeling of sin, and, and you haven't really experienced many consequences yet, but don't be feel, fooled. The Bible says God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. You might maybe feel the weight of your choices right now. Maybe that's where you're at this morning, but, but take heart. It's never too late to start. Today is the day to remember God's grace and Jesus reminding us. What did Jesus say? He said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 
who don't need to repent. Like when there's repentance, when there's turning away from this, God's grace is never too far away from you. It's right there for you. Let me close with this. You might walk out of here tempted to feel a weight of condemnation because of your sin or the fact that you might be experiencing some consequences of your sinful choices today. I want you to consider two people. This is kind of an object lesson from Jesus' life. Two people, Judas and Peter. Two great sinners. The Bible shows both of them as great sinners. Judas and Peter. They both spent three years of their life with him. Two great sinners, but two very different responses to their sin. So Judas, as most of you know, uh, he sinned against Jesus in a profound way. Betrayal, love of money. He didn't cut off his sin at the root. He indulged it, and there were grave consequences. The Bible says that he committed suicide and that he went to hell. Peter, he sinned against Jesus in a very profound way. He denied him vehemently. He rejected him vehemently in public, loudly, at Jesus' moment of greatest need. And there were consequences of this for, for Peter, for sure. The Bible says that he wept bitterly. I mean, he, he, had, he had shame just weighing him down. And the weight of this was heavy on his shoulders. But what's the difference between Judas and Peter? The Bible never says that Judas repented of any of it. The Bible does give a strong impression that Peter did. Judas was rejected. Peter was accepted and restored. David repented of his sin. There are consequences. We've seen those gory details this morning. Consequences are very uncomfortable. But he was not rejected by God. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, in spite of it all. So hear this this morning. If, if there's left in you a desire for repentance, take heart today. Don't leave here discouraged. Leave here rejoicing that there's still room at the table for you. What does the Bible say? The Bible says Jesus is a friend of sinners. Even though there's consequences for David, Jesus would have come and said, David, you're a mess. Let's sit down and eat because I want to be with you. Zacchaeus, he was a mess. He betrayed his own people. He went, he, went, he went to work for the oppressor of his own people so that he could make money. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, hey, man, let's get together. I want to sit at the table with you. And Zacchaeus repented. The Bible says Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners to come to him, listen to him, believe in him, turn away from sin. So be sober this morning by the consequences that can come to pass if we indulge sin and not seek to kill it. 
But also remember that just like David, when there's repentance, it doesn't mean the absence of consequences, but it does mean that you will not be rejected by God. Jesus died so that your sin, when you repent, can be covered by Jesus as your substitute, who takes God's wrath from you in your place so that you can know for sure that you are a child of God no matter what, not rejected, accepted, loved, restored. So don't leave here this morning discouraged. Maybe sobered. Maybe there's some consequences to bear, but it's never too late for repentance and breaking the cycle of sin and its potentially deadly effects on you and those who are connected to you. Today is the day of repentance. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we kill sin by the power of the grace of God through repentance and forgiveness that is at the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you this morning that that you don't water down real life for us. Lord, I imagine all of us can see ourselves in David. And so may we see Jesus even bigger and grander and more glorious than we relate to David. May we take a thousand looks at the cross for every one look at ourselves. Lord, I pray that there would be a seriousness about sin There'd be a seriousness about holiness among us because we know who we are, Lord, and we know how we got to be who we are through you saving us, through you calling us, through repentance and faith in you and what you've done. Lord, I pray that reality would be alive among us by the power of your spirit this morning. Lord, for those those this morning that, that have some business to take care of, maybe it's practicing repentance for the first time of some sin that's being hidden. Lord, I pray you would you would compel by your spirit and your word for that to happen. Lord, if there's conversations that need to be had between one another or a family member or a roommate or a coworker or a neighbor, Lord, I pray that would happen. I pray it would be people that are known because we understand your grace that we would be quick to repent and quick to receive forgiveness, quick to offer forgiveness when people need to repent to us in light of how you say you are a friend of sinners. May that be so of us. Lord, we ask for this reality to be alive among us as a community of your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.